Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Deonza Times. I am a master's student in health policy at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and a Commonwealth Fund Fellow in Minority Health Policy. It is my honor to introduce John Lechleiter, PhD, Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Eli Lilly and Company. Dr. Lechleiter has had a non-traditional climb to his current position as CEO. He truly learned the pharmaceutical industry from the ground up. He initially joined Eli Lilly in 1979 as a senior organic chemist in process research and development. Three years later, in 1982, he became head of that department. In 1984, he began serving as Director of Pharmaceutical Product Development for the Lilly Research Center Limited in, in England. He later went on to hold roles in project management, regulatory affairs, product development, and operations. In 2005, he was named President and Chief Operating Officer and joined the Board of Directors. Ultimately, in April 1st, 2008, Dr. Lechleiter was named CEO of Eli Lilly and Chairman of the Board of Directors in January 2009. Dr. Lettleiter earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Xavier University and his master's and doctoral degrees in organic chemistry from Harvard University, where he was a National Science Foundation fellow. He has received honorary doctorates from multiple universities in the U.S. and abroad, including Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the National University of Ireland. Dr. Lettleiter is a member of the American Chemical Society and Business Roundtable. He serves on the board of the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America as chairman of the U.S.-Japan Business Council and of United Way Worldwide and on the boards of the Life Sciences Foundation and the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. He also serves on the boards of Nike Inc. and Ford Motor Company. For all of his professional accomplishments, it is his insistence to make diversity of his scientific workforce a priority that resonated most with me. Under his leadership, Eli Lilly has shown progress year after year in diversity initiatives and climbed Diversity Inc.'s top 50 list. Before I turn the session over to our moderator, Ashish Jha, K.T. Lee, Professor of International Health and Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, please join me in welcoming Dr. John Lechleiter to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So John, thank you so much for coming. Um, boy, that set of responsibilities as uh, was outlined, I, was, I don't know how we fit this in, but uh, really appreciate you I'm glad this. we did. So <laughs> I am too. So I'm going to jump right in um, by, if, if you don't mind, starting off with a topic that is very much in the headlines, um, which is this new law, this very controversial law in Indiana. Uh, and what I thought was a very unusual uh, move by you and, and the CEOs of, of uh, other Indiana-based companies to speak out against it, uh, or to at least ask for clarifications around it. Uh, for those of you who have not followed this very closely, the Indiana legislature uh, passed and the governor signed a bill um, uh, ostensibly to defend religious liberty uh, and practice of religion, which I think we all agree with, uh, but, but it raised very serious questions about protections, some fundamental protections for gays and lesbians as well as other groups. I would love it if you could talk about, um, when confronted with a difficult issue like this, what is the thought process behind which you decide you're going to take this on? 
why, and then what's the process that you go through to um, put yourself and your company very much uh, into the public space in, in, in saying we need to make changes to this law yeah. to defend an important group of people? Yeah. Well, it's a very good question, and this has been all over the news. In fact, it's been in the global uh, news arena the past uh, week or so. Um, and of course, our company follows this like we would follow any piece of legislation in our home state. To put it in perspective, Lilly has about 38,000 employees around the world and about 12,000 work in, in Indiana. I think to make things more challenging for us, we're, we're sort of the last research-based pharma company in sort of the middle America. I mean, it's, there, it's, it's more along both coasts. So we have to be very uh, attuned with the uh, requirement that we be able to recruit and retain people from all over the world, not just from both coasts, to come to work in Indiana. We're interested in making sure, we have a vital interest in making sure that Indiana remains a welcoming place, a place where uh, individuals not only would want to come to work, but would want to stay and 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 uh, uh, grow and develop as as people and as professionals and and be important parts of the community. We think that that is the reality of of, of Indiana, but we were concerned with this legislation that not, not not for what it says about religious freedom, but for what it, it sort of leaves open to question about whether or not it would. Uh, affect the, the rights of particularly uh, the gay and lesbian community of people uh, based on either sexual orientation or their gender identity. We want that clarified. We want to make sure that, that in the name of protecting religious freedom, we're not introducing something that would enable uh, those individuals to be discriminated against. It's, uh, it, it's, it's another decision altogether to decide, you know, when do you sort of put the company and the company's name behind this. We felt that this was such an important issue, not only for Lilly, and, you know, you could say for our self-interest, but for the interest of the broader community. And obviously, eight of the other largest employers in, in Indiana uh, agreed with us and, and are of like, like mind, and that's why we sent the letter we did uh, yesterday, um, which I think is on the front of of USA Today, someone someone told me so. Um, but you know, you have to weigh these thoughts carefully. Lily can't weigh in and would not weigh in on every every issue in the in the public discourse. Uh, earlier this year, we weighed in on on another local issue that had to do with early childhood education because we were so concerned that unless we got traction here, we just were not going to be able to generate within the community the. The, the strength and the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the numbers of high school graduates and people who are really employable in, in, a, in a high tech industry like ours years and years from now. So we, we waited on that as well. And and I think it is as you say, it's a little different than it might have been in the past when I think large corporations, particularly a company like Lilly, you know, 139 years in Indiana, viewed as you know large conservative. Uh, you know, we, we, we might have remained silent, but I think on these two matters in particular, uh, we, we had to speak up. Yeah. So, it, it, as I saw that decision and I had a chance to read some of the things you had written about leadership, and I, I'm hoping we can go back to talking about um, a story that you describe of, of uh, uh, from the late 70s, I think, of Sir John Harvey Jones, who went, uh, was the CEO of, of a major chemical company right. in England. Uh, describe, asked to describe the attributes yeah. of leadership 
Um, I'll, I'll let you tell that story, but but then I, I'll come back to this decision and how it fits into. Well, that. I always I tell this story a lot, even inside the company. We lived in the UK from '83 to '86, and I remember watching an interview on BBC while we were there of Sir John Harvey Jones, who at that time was <clears throat> near the end of his tenure as the CEO of ICI. It was the big British chemical conglomerate, really on its knees in the 60s and 70s due to a variety of factors. He was a lifer at the company. He joined him as a chemical engineer. You know, he, he has a very imposing presence. He had this long black hair and a Fu Manchu mustache. He kind of looked like Vlad the Destroyer, you know, but he was, uh, he was the CEO of ICI. And by that time, sort of legendary in, his, in terms of his ability to have turned the company around and a sought-after speaker. So I thought, oh, I'm going to take notes here. They're talking to John Harvey Jones. And, so the, the interviewer asked him, much like you're asking me, you know, how would you, what are the most important attributes of leadership? And you know, I've got my pen and paper ready, and, and uh, he said something that I didn't expect and I probably didn't understand until some number of years after that. He said, well, that's easy, there, it's two things, it's courage and physical stamina. I, I was expect, you know, would, would, those, would you think of courage and physical stamina? But, you know, after a, a, a little more white hair and gray hair, uh, I've come to realize the guy, the guy was right. And I, I think that, uh, you know, leadership, leadership fundamentally involves, uh, uh, you know, doing something that is, has a certain degree of difficulty. Uh, it, it, it's, there's always a from to in leadership. You're from this to that. And, and that degree of difficulty, means that oftentimes you have to overcome resistance and overcoming resistance requires a modicum of courage un under any any circumstance I, I believe. Um, the position Lilly took on the matter we just talked about will not be popular with everyone. Um, you know you have to be able to sort of weather that and brook that to to, to be able to before you decide to go there. Okay, I think physical stamina I, I, I tend to translate that down into persistence you know, stay tuitiveness, grit, determination, because there's many setbacks along along the way. Um, you know, Lilly has has just you know uh, gone through a period where we've lost the patents. The patents expired on our four largest products, and all of you know how this works. The generics come in. It's a very efficient process, but we just watched about ten billion dollars of revenue off a base of maybe twenty-five billion melt away over a, a several-year period. That was challenging enough, but we couldn't have foreseen in 2008 the, the Affordable Care Act, which fundamentally changes the way much of health care is delivered in this country. We could not have foreseen the Great Recession, which was just gathered, the storm clouds were just gathering. So, you know, any journey of leadership always requires overcoming obstacles and dealing with adversity, and I think that's where the physical stamina uh, c comes in. I think knowing that, I had a, a, a serious uh, health condition a few years ago. I had a, uh, an aortic aneurysm and I was hospitalized. I had surgery uh, and I, I checked out for two months. There was no question in my mind I wasn't going to try to halfway do the, the CEO job. I just turned the reins over, as Kate knows, to our CFO. He became the acting CEO and I recuperated. I, I you know, recovered from that surgery uh, successfully, but you know, you can't do the job of a leader without physical stamina. Wow. Um, so, you describe these two traits, um, and yet one of the things that, that you've often talked about is that it's hard to, to quantify or describe in great detail what great leadership looks like, because it varies based on context. 
So do you think these two things are the two things in your mind, I'm not suggesting they're the only two, that are constant and other stuff varies? Or, how, or I guess, how do you conceptualize leadership in different contexts? Because you can imagine leadership in an academic context, in, a, in your first job, what leadership looks like may be very different from if you're yeah. leading a, uh, a Fortune 50 or a Fortune 100 company. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, can you talk about leadership in different contexts and what that might look like? Sure. I think that uh, I think there there certainly is context. I think leaders in different contexts, you know, can be can look leadership can look different differently. I, I don't think it's necessarily also a hierarchical thing where, you know, we we expect our president to be a leader. We expect. Uh, uh, you know, a CEO to be a leader, a department chair to, to be a leader, okay? I think leadership leadership can, can happen at any level. I mean, I see within our company lots of examples of, of leadership on the part of people at, in entry-level roles, and, and I admire that. I try to point that out when, when I see it. I, I think a, a, a constant, though, I, I mean, I think courage and physical stamina are sort of, um, you've kind of got to carry those in your bag with you, you know, as you go through this journey. I think leaders fundamentally take a stand uh, about uh, something or something. They're, they're, they, 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 you know, are, are going to stand for something. Uh, they're going to be seen as as being supportive of um, of something that that maybe doesn't exist today, but might exist tomorrow. JFK famously took a stand in 1961. We're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, return him safely to Earth. So there's always sort of a goal aspect to leadership. I said they're from too earlier, but I think leaders take a stand. Um, they're unmovable from that stand. They're flexible enough to think about the ways and means of accomplishing the goal. Uh, they try to create a big tent so that you, there's no leadership without followership. You, you've got to invite people in and, and convince people at the end of the day that what you stand for is worth their support. Um, you know, uh, it, if if someone said, "Well, in eight, seven years tomorrow, I guess, of my being CEO, what, you know, what would I stand for from an industry perspective?" I think I think most people uh, in the industry who know me would say I stand for uh, uh, the continued uh, uh, robust investment in R and D and a policy environment that encourages innovation. I mean, I think that that's that's what all I've been talking about for you know. Yeah. So here's the, for us at the school, in some ways, the, the million dollar question. So can this be taught? Can you hmm. teach leadership to people? And if yes, how do you do that? So it's a nature or nurture question. I think I'm probably more on the end of the scale. You know, if it's, you say all leaders are born versus, you know, all leaders can, can be taught to lead. I'm probably more on the end of the spectrum that, that leadership can be, can be learned. Um, I, I think there probably are some people who are born with certain attributes uh, uh, that enable them to be seen as leaders. But you know, uh, we were talking earlier. Persuasiveness is can't be confused with with leadership. I mean, there's somebody who would like in this city somewhere would like to separate me from my money, who I'm sure is very persuasive. <laughs> okay. It doesn't it doesn't mean that they're that they're that they're leaders. Um, I think on the other hand, my ex my experience has been that. When individuals are given the opportunity to lead, and sometimes it's forced on you, okay, uh, and when they have around them people who can coach and mentor them, and they have role models, and talk more about that. I think role models are very, very important. Many people can can step up to, to leadership. I mean, when I joined Lilly as a chemist in November of 1979, did I really think I was going to be the CEO of Lilly? I mean, 
I would have laughed out loud. I mean, nothing could have been further from my mind, but I was given opportunities over time, first to lead a lab, then to lead a department, then to lead a division, and then I was given responsibility to lead the Community United Way campaign. And I mean, you have all these different experiences and you find, you know, I can do this. And, and I learn more as I go along. I learn, uh, you know, uh, how to be a better leader as I go along. It wasn't conscious, but it, 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 it for in my case, I was fortunate because it, it happened. And I, I believe that, that most people who walk in our door can, can, can develop leadership, can be leaders in the course of their, their careers. So what's your strategy or your company's strategy for developing the next generation of leaders at Lilly? Well, we have, um, first of all, we, we talk a lot about, about leadership. And um, as I say, leadership does entail some degree of change. I mean, if, if we're, all we were asked to do was to maintain the status quo, all we would need is good managers. We wouldn't need leaders. We need very good managers. And sometimes, I'm not knocking management. Uh, sometimes that status quo, certain aspects of that status quo have to be maintained in a, in a time of change. So, uh, you know, I think we, when, when someone joins Eli Lilly and Company, they hear about leadership almost from their earliest days. I mean, we have uh, at different levels opportunities for people to learn more about leadership, to, to assess their own leadership skills, to study leadership. But, uh, you know, we think about 70% of what people learn occurs in the course of their normal day-to-day -day work. We think about 10% uh, happens in the classroom. We think about 20% happens from coaching and mentoring. We call it 70-20-10 model. It's not a Lilly model, but I mean, we, we tend to believe that, that that is probably the, that the best learning lab for any of us is, is our day-to-day -day experiences. But you have to be willing to sit back and reflect on those experiences. Y you know, Churchill once said about one of his uh, enemies in Parliament, he said, Occasionally, Sir So-and-so stumbles across the truth, but he quickly collects himself and goes on as if nothing had happened. <laughs> and uh, I think we have to be conscious of when we stumble across the truth and, and, and be aware of situations where we either succeeded as leaders or failed as a leader and, and tr try to learn from that. But you, you, have to re you have to step back and consciously do that. We encourage our employees to do that as well. Got it. Great. Um, so students in the room, students who are watching, who are here because they want to not only learn a, a body of knowledge, but want to prepare themselves for leadership opportunities that might come along, advice uh, at an early stage of, of how you do it, how you prepare for it, how you, if you stumble across that opportunity, uh, don't go along as though nothing happened? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I, I think that that leadership, opportunities for leadership abound, first of all. And, and I don't think any of us typically have um, the opportunity on a day-to-day -day basis to take on a, what I call a, a save the world or boil the ocean kind of leadership job. They, they tend to be in small, in small things. Um, you know, I, I had uh, leadership responsibilities when I was in college for volunteer uh, organizations. In fact, sometimes volunteer organizations are almost the best way to develop your leadership because you have a lot of responsibility but you don't have a lot of authority. And, and I think that, you know, when you have the position power, people sort of do what you say because you, you ask them to do it or demand that they do it. When you don't have that, 
you've really got to bring people along. They've got to want to follow you because they see something that's very compelling, that's in their interest as well as the organization's interest. So, you know, I, I would say to students, practice. I mean, practice your leadership. And if you're involved in a student group, um, if you're involved in some kind of a fundraising campaign, um, if you're doing something online with a, with a group of friends, I mean, you know, where, where are the opportunities to, to show that, that leadership? What is it that you, you stand for? And, and how is it that, that you can, can bring people along with you? Communication is an essential part of, of leadership. Um, when I said earlier, uh, leadership usually involves some degree of change, it means that you typically have to overcome resistance. And sometimes it's not, host it's not people that are hostile to you, it's just people tend to get comfortable in, in, in a, in a, with a certain way of doing things or a certain way of thinking about the world. To, to get to, to, to move those people, you, you, have to, you, you have to present a convincing argument. But you have to repeat that about 500 times sometimes. So, um, you know, as we looked at this, this journey that we've been on at Lilly in the past uh, seven or so years, I described this huge patent cliff. You know, I, I only said about five things the whole time. I mean, I found different ways to package though, but you know, I basically, and it said, we're gonna face this huge, patent cliff um, and you know we don't have the pipeline ready yet to launch and replace all that revenue so we've got to take some actions within the company to deal with that we had to downsize parts of the company we had to cut costs having said that we're going to keep in robustly investing robustly in R&D we believe we've, we have an early stage pipeline that will mature uh, we, we we're going to do some other things to help uh, grow our revenue during this period <clears throat> and uh, we're confident of the outcome and, and here's your role in that in that process and then something about the fact that I think today there's never been a better time to do what we're doing given the, the maturity of the science, the opportunity we have to make a difference in, in medicine. So I mean thematically that's basically all I've talked about for seven years and and um, you know and you're you're talking about leading you know a huge company. Obviously lots of those conversations have to go take place at, at lower levels in the organization. But I I, I think being articulate, being able to communicate your po a point of view, being seen as someone who is uh, has integrity and and who is legitimately who legitimately cares about not only the cause or the stand that they're taking, but the views of others. I think these things are all important for students to think about. So shift gears on talk about something you brought up, um, which is the most important change in the healthcare delivery system and the healthcare system in America in the last five decades, the Affordable Care Act. Um, it came on soon after uh, you took over. Um, how do you see the pharmaceutical industry navigating the waters over the next five to ten years? I mean, beyond that, who knows? Timelines get, you know, I don't know, speculate on what's going to happen in 20 years. But just over the next five to ten years, as we move towards larger health delivery systems, more consolidation. Uh, we move towards trying to do more value-based payments, mm -hmm. um, more measurement of quality, more IT, all of the changes that are happening in the delivery system. It's a different world. It's a different world for you guys. How do you see yourself, but also the industry navigating that uh, kind of more broadly? And what are the yeah. challenges that it poses? Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very good question. I think that, first of all, we supported, the industry supported the Affordable Care Act because it, it was difficult for us to see when, when we when we believe as we do 
that, that medicines are an essential part of preventing disease and treating disease, it's very difficult to see 50 or 60 million people sitting on the sidelines hoping uh, almost by chance that uh, their situation is going to be such that through emergency care, through you know charity or whatever, they're going to get access to our medicines. Didn't make any sense. So we we need a system where everybody can access insurance coverage. I mean, I think that's you know, and we we've taken a lot of criticism before, during, and after that. But I maintain we're in the right place there. Um, with respect to sort of the people ask me a lot. Well, what's been the impact of the Affordable Care Act on the industry? Um, I think the, the measurable impact has been that <clears throat> through the fee, which is assessed of all manufacturers based on our sales, through um, uh, increased Medicaid rebates, and through uh, monies that are allocated to help seniors bridge the Medicare donut hole, you know, Lilly has roughly, roughly uh, put about $500 million a year uh, or more into the uh, essentially into the cause, okay? I mean, it, it, we're, we're, uh, we're paying from the bottom line, as it were. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, when the law was passed, people said, well, this is gonna be a boon for the pharmaceutical industry. That's the only reason these guys are supporting it. So they're gonna have a lot more customers. You know, I wouldn't say that, that there's been a huge uptick that, that I can immediately assign to the Affordable Care Act. I mean, let's face it, today more than 80% of prescriptions in this country are filled with generic drugs. So four out of five prescriptions somebody's going to get written is probably going to be with, with, a, with a generic. But having, having said that, I think we're in a better place when people have access to, to, uh, to our medicines uh, as well as to generics. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things we're concerned about, frankly, is as we've seen the, these, 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 these uh, individual insurance policies come out of the exchanges, Yes, the premiums are low, but in some cases, people are getting a rude awakening that the copay or the deductible is so high they can't access the medicines that their doctors are prescribing. Well, that's not that's not health insurance. I mean, that's 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 something disguised as health insurance. So we've been quite vocal in saying a good health policy is one that enables you to be able to affordably access the medicines that your doctor prescribes. That's a decision the doctor makes if someone is getting a, a branded product or a generic product, well, we have to compete based on the merits of the, of the, of the, of the products. And, and we're obviously, you know, that's the business we're in, so. Right. Good, so I am uh, going to, at this moment, open it up to questions and answers from the, uh, well, answers from you, questions from the audience. <laughs> and let's actually oh, make sure Oh, you mean sure I can't ask questions? You can, you can. Um, and and uh, in this audience, we often like to do the question and answer from the audience, but I'm kidding. Uh, but but uh, we have some microphones, and so if people have questions for John uh, about uh, leadership in general, about Lilly and its strategy and how it's been thinking about navigating some of these difficult waters, wh wherever, just wherever you guys want to go, I'm, I'm happy to open it up and see what Questions are percolating out there. Dean Frank. Hi, John. Thank you again for being here. Um, you have those magic three letters after your name, PhD. You come from a very strong academic background, got a PhD here at Harvard. A lot of our students are following that pathway. But most people with those letters continue in, in, in academic settings. You, 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 you went into the world of industry and are now leading one of the top uh, knowledge-intensive companies in the world. H how, how, what are your reflections about that transition from the world of science and research to the, way, to the, to the world of leading a large multinational com company? 
Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question. Um, the transition for me from graduate school wasn't terribly abrupt because uh, I went from working at one lab bench in, in Converse Hall across the river to working at an, another lab bench at, at Lilly, working on projects that use the same skill set. Um, you know, we, we, we employ thousands, hundreds or thousands of, of thousands of MDs and PhDs in our company. Um, there, there's a, I won't say it, 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 there, it's an, an academic environment, but there are aspects of that would be recognizable by anyone in academics. We encourage people to publish uh, papers. Uh, we encourage scientific discourse among our scientists and increasingly reach out to engage with, with other scientists uh, in other companies as well as with academia to, to, uh, to do our work. I will say it was a transition though from it was a it, it was a, a a significant transition to move from the lab. I remember the day I sort of shut down my lab, and you know uh, they 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 said I could go back, which means I couldn't go back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I knew it was sort of a point of no return. But in those early days of being sort of leading groups in our Lilly research labs, my my first several management jobs. I sort of lived vicariously through the scientists. I, I found I enjoyed it because I could go in their labs and they'd tell me what they're doing and I, sort of, I understood it, or you know, to a point. Today, they think I understand a lot more than I do, okay? But I, I, I found that it, it was fun to, to be in a position where you could help these scientists get, what they, get done what they wanted to get done. So it, that, that, that really eased that, that, that transition. Um, and you know, we have many, many people in management within our company who started out as, as a scientist as I did. Not, not everyone chooses that path and we don't force everyone on that, on that path, but uh, there, there, there are ways that I think we've learned to sort of better help and manage that, that transition for those people. Let's go follow up question to that. One of the um, questions that people often ask about why is drug development so hard, so expensive, why does it take so long? I mean, some of it is just, it just does, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, but there's another sort of debate that I've heard, and I wondered if, if you could speak to this, about how disciplined is the R&D versus how much creativity, and you have a lot of very smart people who probably wouldn't be that happy if every morning they showed up and were told exactly what to do, <laughs> right? That We'd have a rebellion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Part of what makes them excited to go is that they have a bunch of their own ideas and they get to play with those ideas. Yeah. And you want to yeah. foster that. Yeah. But you also want to foster a certain amount of discipline and yeah. focus. Yeah. And that seems to me to be a tension and people have wondered aloud whether if the industry shifted on that in one direction or another, whether it would be more effective or less effective. I wonder if, if you could talk about that. I, I think we have a pretty open environment. I mean, I think that we, we really leave it to our scientific leadership to, to talk about the, 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 how, the details of the how. What we've tried to do though in recent years, and your question's very topical, is to better define what areas, broadly speaking, do we want to, to work in. And this is important. Uh, when I joined Lilly in the late 70s, um, we were then, like we are now, one of the largest pharma companies, but we, we were, if anybody had an idea, it didn't matter what therapeutic area it was in, people tended to pursue those things if, if it looked like there was an interesting lead. Today we're saying it's really cancer, it's diabetes, and of course diabetes gets into comp, uh, cardiovascular complications a little bit. Uh, it's it's uh, 
neurodegeneration, we have a, a leading program in Alzheimer's, and then we have some, incipient, some nascent programs in pain, looking at some new mechanisms for treating pain, and also in immunology, mainly autoimmune disease. Those really define the scope of what we're, we're working on. Um, and we've recently sort of realigned parts of our research and development efforts to, to better line up with that. And then you can say, well, within cancer, we can't do everything. So we talk about uh, cell signaling, uh, tumor microenvironment, and immuno-oncology. Those are the three spaces within cancer. But how we approach those things, who we choose to work with, because much of what we do is in partnership with academic institutions, small biotechs, we're, we, we cut a pretty wide swath. I don't try to get involved in, 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 in managing that. We really do have to enable our scientists to have that, maintain that balance with the freedom, freedom to operate, to think a little bit sometimes off the track, and, and, and yet we have, as a corporation, have to have a certain discipline yeah. to, to expect that we have a realistic chance of, of getting you know, results at the end of the day. Recently, I've been more um, adamant, I guess is the word, about uh, sort of making sure that we're competitive within these spaces. How do I say this? 10 or 20 years ago, I don't think there was as much uh, at stake in being first, second, or third in a disease category. And sometimes, you know, you could be years behind the leader and still come up with a product that had its own value and you get reimbursed for that and all that. I, I'm, I'm tr trying to uh, encourage our scientists at all levels to, to stay much more abreast of what the competition is doing. Hmm. And it's not always competition, it's science anywhere in a particular category to make sure that if we're going to invest there, we have a reasonable chance of, of, of being competitive with, with others. I, I think that's uh, uh, in terms of, of getting a drug to market and being, say, first, second, or third. This is, this is something we're talking more and more about uh, because I think the, the, the marketplace is just that much less forgiving today. Got it, and yeah. really partly driven by the shift in the economics of how we Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now, you know, if you come along in your fourth or fifth, but you're better, I mean, you know, right. I mean, you know, Lipitor is, was the huge leader in that statin class, and it wasn't the first, but, you know, I think, and it's not our product, by the way, but I think, uh, you, you know, it, it did so well because it had certain advantages that physicians, proved, you know, felt were, advantageous for many people. So. Right. Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name's Rosa. I'm a health policy student here, and uh, my question is on clinical data, uh, data transparency. So um, some of your competitors, um, GSK and Pfizer, for example, are driving this push to open access to patient-level clinical trial data for the wider medical and research community. Uh, my question to you is, um, do you see this as a threat or an opportunity to the pharmaceutical community? Well, I think ultimately it's an opportunity. I mean, Lily has been at the forefront of, of transparency. I mean, we, we were uh, among the first, this is prior to any legislative uh, action. Uh, back in 2007, I think we were the first company to uh, disclose uh, all the non-clinical grants that we, that we made. Uh, we've several other uh, things that we've led in disclosure over the years. We're obviously uh, with the Sunshine Act. We we have requirements now here in the U.S. and soon next year in in Europe for uh, for disclosure. Uh, I'm I think we can find the the right balance between uh, disclosing the data and protecting, first of all, patient privacy, which is something we have to be concerned about, 
and then protecting you know information that may be confidential uh, to the to the to the company. Um, and I, I think that there's some there's some good to be done there. I mean I think that you know uh, researchers having access to to large databases uh, uh, of, of patient you know, of information I think you know what you would you would imagine could be a terrific substrate for further work and queries and and planning further research. So you know I think it's inevitable that that you know the transparency movement within uh, the industry is has a full head of steam behind it and I think that uh, you know Lily's going to uh, to to continue to be to be part of that. Yep. Thank you. Hi, I'm Diane Worth uh, here at Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Sort of a question um, maybe asking you to use your pharma organization hat. Um, you know, neglected diseases, diseases that really minimally affect uh, people living in the U.S. Or, or Europe, yet are major health problems, malaria, tuberculosis, the neglected parasitic diseases. From an industry standpoint, I mean, clearly basic discovery can be done in academia, but the actual production and, you know, sort of the development of drugs and the production really are an industry function. And I just wonder, Lily has now moved away from infectious diseases, so you're not directly involved, but in your, your broader roles, um, what do you think the role of industry is? What, what novel ideas are there to be able to continue to discover and then deliver such therapeutics or vaccines uh, to neglected populations? Yeah, it's a very good question, and I think uh, a, a partial answer, you know, is is uh, came from an industry perspective with the London Declaration a few years ago, and I have to give credit to the Gates Foundation for really spearheading that. Uh, most of our CEOs meet with Bill Gates once or twice a year, and uh, so he's he's vitally interested in making sure that uh, you know to the to the extent possible, the foundation works with us to either incentivize drug development in some of these areas or to connect the dots and enable you know people who may be working in one of these neglected diseases to at least have access to our chemistry libraries. The one thing Lily is working on, we've been very involved with Gates in this TB drug discovery initiative where half a dozen or so, there may be eight companies are now uh, involved. Uh, essentially, they've op we've opened up our chemical libraries and we're working with uh, the uh, IDRI group Infectious Diseases Research Institute based in Seattle to, uh, to do secondary and tertiary screening of these molecules in, in, their, uh, in their, uh, their TB screen um, with the goal of, of having an, an oral therapy that, that can successfully treat the disease in a one-month course of, of treatment. That's kind of been the, the, the ambition of this group. Uh, we have several of our scientists who are quite involved in this, so even though it's not a mainstream Research effort for Lilly, you're correct. We we essentially ran into a brick wall in the in the area of infectious diseases in the early '90s, and we moved our research over to neuroscience and other areas. But we we still maintain that 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 effort. And I think if you look at Sanofi, you look at Pfizer, you look at a lot of the other companies, particularly the companies that are in vaccines, which we are not. I think more and more attention is being is being paid to this. I think the question becomes, how do you sustain that? How do you incentivize it? Um, you know, how do you essentially reward the risk takers for having 
uh, for having taken the, 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 uh, the risk uh, to, to begin with. I do see, as I read uh, the literature, just as you do, and, and what's written in, in the public space, I think more and more companies are beginning to move in, or you could say back into an infectious disease. And uh, um, partly because uh, the FDA, you know, there's some, there are some incentives there, and there may be others coming in this legislation coming out of Chairman Upton's committee that would make that more, more enticing. But, you know, over the years I've heard people say to me, well, you guys must have gotten out of infectious disease because, you know, you couldn't make any money on a seven-day course of treatment. You'd rather be in chronic disease where you're treating people for the rest of their lives. I wish we were that clever, but we're, we're, that's, that wasn't the thought process at all. Lilly wrote the book on a number of vancomycin, erythromycin, cephalexin, tobramycin, cefaclor. All these molecules came out of work we did in partnership with others or in our own labs. And we had a 30 or 40 year history of leadership in infectious diseases. We hit the wall. I mean, I can tell you personally, I mean, we, we, we tried to come up with what is the, the next iteration on the cephalosporin nucleus. You know, how can you do better than vancomycin? And frankly, nobody. I mean, vanco discovered in the 50s is still last line of, of treatment for, for many, or many of these very difficult to treat organisms. So we would have loved to have done more in that area. We'd still be in there today, but scientifically, after, after cefachlorin X, we had something called lower carbeth, which was a carbacefm. It didn't do very well because, frankly, it wasn't better. It wasn't demonstrably better than what was already out there. So. That, that it, the science has to get us there. And these, turns out these bacterium are pretty tough little guys. They've been around a while. <laughs> they, 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 they've evolved. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, the quick question is, so the, the broader scientific enterprise of our country, primarily funded through NIH, <clears throat> has seen some pretty tough times. Does that worry you about, the, about tackling some of these really difficult issues? Do you think? Um, I guess, do you, think, do you still think the best days are ahead of us on, on scientific discovery? Well, I think we've made a big mistake in terms of how we have, how, in terms of our funding of the NIH, and we should be funding it in a more robust way. In constant dollars, I'm told the NIH, NIH funding peaked in 2003. Not last year, but 10, more than 10 years ago. Francis Collins makes this point. Um, this is the wrong time not to be investing in the life sciences. Um, we're starting to make sense of a lot of the information that sort of began to flow out of a bigger, big pipe when, with, the, with the Human Genome Project and others that, that followed. Our, our understanding of some of this disease biology is it's exquisite. Now that doesn't automatically mean we're going to get new medicines from that, but I don't think there's ever been a more opportune time for investment. And, and what, what the NIH, in, in my view, has done best is, is to really help elucidate disease pathways and ultimately targets. If you said to me, what's the hardest part of discovering new medicines, whether it's for Alzheimer's or whether it's for malaria, it, it's, it's, it's having good targets. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we're not, our industry is, spends only a little bit of what we do. We can't afford to spend uh, as, as much as we might like to discover new targets. Occasionally we do. Lily's had a few over in recent years, but what we'd rather do is 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 to is to is, is to once a target's elucidated, figure it out how how to make a, a drug, an antibody, or a small molecule that interacts with that target. We've gotten a lot better at doing that, yeah. but but the the number of new targets 
hasn't increased com commensurately. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will, and I think the NIH plays a big role in funding the research that really leads to that. Um, but I, we, we, need to, we need to increase the level of NIH funding. Sorry, you waited very patiently. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, I'm Shelly. Um, I'm a student in biostatistics. Um, I think my question probably pertains to some of the students in the room. Um, I think we probably find ourselves in similar situations as when you first started at Eli Lilly in the sense that we maybe know where we're headed for the next couple years, but maybe we don't have a sense of our long-term trajectories. And I'm just curious, um, kind of in your career path, um, as you you know, sort of were given new responsibilities and had new experiences. How did you sort of manage these like short-term um, sort of goals that you had and very long-term career trajectories, um, career goals, and as you moved along your career? Yeah, that's a very good question. I get asked that a lot. I think that um, my, my advice uh, to people in your position or people even deciding, you know, that they don't know what they want to do in the short-term even, I would say follow your, your passion. Um, Life is too short uh, not not to be not to love your work, and uh, um, I would say that that's a good place to, to start. I mean, make sure that whatever you decide to do as soon as you finish your program here is something you're excited about. You know, that makes your socks run up and down. Okay, and uh, uh, then and I wouldn't get I, I I've never really thought. I mean, I need a job in 1979. You know, we had a young son who was born at the lying in, or that's what I still call it, so what is it now, the, the uh, women in Brigham's. And, uh, and, he, and he and I and his mother had a couple dimes to rub together. And I, I, I wanted to do chemistry and I needed a job. And uh, it was right after the recession, 70s were a tough time. I was told in 1975, you gotta be crazy going to graduate school in chemistry, thousands of chemists were being laid off in this country in the mid 70s and I figured, well, it's four years and, and I'm, you know, I got this NSF grant, I can hide out for four years and hopefully the tide will turn and of course it did. So I, I would say pursue your, your passion, uh, do something you're really interested in. The opportunities that you have today in this world are completely, uh, I, I mean just, just, just are, you know, 10 times more, 100 times more than the opportunities that we saw before us at least or had before us in 1979. So you don't know what's gonna come along. And you'll look back in five or 10 years and say, well, this led to this and this led, this led to that. I wouldn't fret too much about your long-term career goals. You've got a Harvard, uh, a great Harvard education. Uh, you're, 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 you're bright or you wouldn't be here. Uh, you're uh, presumably ambitious and uh, do, do something you're, you're passionate about and interested in and, 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 and things will, things will, opportunities will, will open up. Um, I told you I was glass half full, okay. <laughs> or even three quarters full. Yeah, three quarters. More hands, did you mm -hmm. have yeah. yeah, I had a, a quick question about uh, bringing entrepreneurship into the domain of public health. Usually our students uh, are not very aware of this, nor do we as their professors, so do you have any views on that? Well, I think the great problems we face, the challenges we face in public health, whether it's in this country or around the world, demand new approaches and new thinking. Um, and there's great evidence of, of that. I mean, there are, there are lots of interesting and exciting things that are being, that are being done. Um, Paul Farmer and Jim Kim came to Lilly uh, a dozen or more years ago and told us that two of our, these older anti-infective drugs, cycloserine and capriomycin, which had been on our price list since the 50s, 
were proving particularly useful in treating MDR-TB where they were working in Haiti. We had no idea. Uh, so we, we made initially a donation of medicines, but then that hatched something called the Lilly MDR-TB Initiative, which we launched in 2003. We've invested about $200 million in transferring the technology to make both of these drugs to companies in China, India, Russia, and South Africa um, to enable the creation of markets in those, in those countries for those medicines and then working with, oh, two dozen healthcare agencies from Doctors Without Borders to, to uh, Harvard Medical School to make sure that healthcare workers are trained on, on, the, on the DOTS uh, uh, therapy approach and, and trained to use these medicines. So this was an example of a very entrepreneurial approach to, to treating one aspect of one very difficult to treat disease, but we've seen so many interesting creative ideas come out of this, not driven by us so much as by our partners. And you know, it never would have happened if Paul and Jim had not, you know, knocked on the door one day and said, literally, we need to tell you about this because we need your help. Um, you know, we, we responded, but yeah, you know, I mean, Paul may, Paul may be the most entrepreneurial, you know, healthcare worker in the world, I don't know, but we, we need new approaches. And this is, this is one thing that I've always thought Harvard could do so well with the business school, the, the Kennedy School of Government, um, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, the medical school. I, I, my, my dream is that, that out of Harvard will come uh, thinking that crosses boundaries and borders and enables those of you who know public health to, en to enlist others, maybe some people who know business and some people who know uh, one aspect of medicine or the other, some people that knows policy to really work together uh, to, uh, to make, uh, you know, to, to, to put us on a different path in terms of dealing with, with some of these problems. Um, you, you know, the old adage is you know, that definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We talk about that within Lilly a lot. We need new approaches and we need, we need new thinking. Um, and I think to the extent you're encouraging that through this program, through other things you're doing here at the school, it's terrific. Hi, I'm Deonza again. Um, you did a nice job with the introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. So my question is kind of um, a piggyback some of the comments that have already been, been made. You know, you spoke about the plethora of opportunities available, um, how you focus on research and development, on needing new ideas. So my question is, how much research and development do you put into the communities around you and bringing in homegrown talent and exposing communities children, women, maybe to careers that they don't have exposure to, because I, I really feel like we are losing a lot of opportunity and a lot of talent and people that never get a chance. Yeah. Well, without going into great detail, we have a foundation, which is our company, sort of our company giving, it's not the Lilly Endowment, that's a different, that's the big kahuna, but the foundation is the way Lilly gives back, and we have narrowed our focus from uh, you know, essentially uh, giving money to many different organizations across our community to focusing on science and math education, K to 12, for women and minority group members in our community. So that, that is our focus. That is the major focus of our foundation, and we do lots of things to help accomplish that. Internships, uh, school-based programs, partnering with others in our community who are trying to do the, the same thing. Because um, it, it, to me, I view it, it's an untapped resource. It's an untapped resource, and we're trying to do what we can locally. And then, in some cases, we've got some national level, some work 
But I, I, I believe you've got to start at home, and we have a great opportunity in Annapolis to, to make that look different in the future. So we have about three minutes left, and I'd love to see if you have any closing remarks, and then I'll just wrap us up. Yeah, I think I'd say three things. One, um, I, we have talked much about humility today, and, and I think uh, humility is often, is usually befits a leader. Uh, I think that uh, leadership is, is an incredibly humbling experience. I, I, you know, the, the last seven years for me as, as Lily CEO, there, there's many things that we might, that I might have thought we could plan for and navigate through, but there were lots of things that came along that failed. We had molecules that failed in the clinic. We had other issues we had to deal with. So, you know, I, I think that um, I look for humility in, in a leader, and uh, I think humility means that you, you have the courage, uh, your, the inner courage to, to face reality, to recognize that you don't have all the answers, uh, to ask others for help, uh, which you inevitably need uh, to accomplish uh, your ends. Um, you know, I, also I talked earlier about building a coalition. I think leaders try to make the tent as big as, as possible. Uh, I think sometimes in this day and age where we always need to be fighting with each other, and you know, look at the Congress and you, people take positions. You know, taking a stand on something doesn't mean that you're completely inflexible about how you get there or that you don't take into account how others see it or how others can actually make what you're trying to do more powerful. So there's a certain openness, humility and openness, I think are important traits of a leader. And finally, I'd say I think leadership can, getting back to the original point, I think you can learn. Leadership can be studied. Uh, I think all of us around us have people that we view as leaders. I think sometimes it can be as simple as studying them uh, or looking at what, may, asking the question, what makes them effective and what can I learn? And you can read books. I mean, I. The most extraordinary story of leadership that I've read recently was 1776, this book by David McCullough. It just tracks George Washington from January 1st, 70, 1776 to December 31st, 1776. And I never knew all that. I never, you know, there's a reason why this guy's called the father of our country. But I, I think as you read, that, you read that book and you think of courage and physical stamina and you think of humility and you think of persistence, all these things resonate, but those stories resonate with Martin Luther King. They resonate with, you know, with Gandhi. They resonate with so many people. So read, read about someone you're interested in, and 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 you know, I think I think that's that's important. It's helped me. That's great, yeah. and it's a phenomenal synthesis of everything you've talked about for the last hour. And I'm not going to try to repeat it, but I want to add one more point that you brought up, which I loved, which was the notion of find an opportunity where you have a lot of responsibility but not a lot of authority. It's really good practice for leadership. I think uh, you probably have some of that here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I thought about all the ways in which I too could get uh, a lot more practice in leadership. Um, John, uh, this has been an extraordinary yeah, I've privilege. enjoyed it. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. For the time. Appreciate really it. Fun. Thank you. And thank you all for your time. This has been a voice